Hello, everyone. My name is Suki Thompson. Welcome to Reset, the podcast, a place for you to get some inspiration and advice to help you live a more fulfilling work life. I do hope that your journey to feel more connected, more inspired, just a bit more energized starts here. Take a moment now with me to reset. week I had the absolute privilege of sitting down with one of our most dynamic and distinguished marketeers globally, Andrew Garrahy. He's the CMO of DD International. In one of the most open yet optimistic conversations I've had on Reset the Podcast to date, I learned so much about the real moments which have shaped Andrew as a human and as a businessman. We discuss his father's alcoholism, the discrimination he has faced personally, as well as his husband's chronic illness. He shares eloquently and authentically the resilience, perspective, and importantly, gratitude these experiences have instilled within him. Andrew has actually changed the way we work at Let's Reset. His desire to run a six-week global reset program helped us all to shape up and step up. Andrew tells me why he wanted such pace and how his ambition to build high-performing teams is based on his five principles of community, culture, care, commonality and coaching. On a personal note, I was truly humbled to hear the impact our work has made on his people and the performance of DD and how he has measured it to great effect. I feel really grateful to be building a business with a purpose to change the lives of those that we work with. And we, of course, talk about that as well. Uh, The conversation is at times real, raw, and really refreshing, which makes this an episode of Reset the Podcast definitely not to miss. Oh, and if you'd like to get in touch with me to hear more about the work we did at DD and how we make a difference to your team and organization, drop me an email at suki at letsreset.com. And if you like what you hear today, please follow, click the button and share it with your friends and colleagues. Thank you. Andrew, it is so lovely to see you today. How was your Easter break? Suki, likewise, it's um, it's an absolute joy to be here. Thank you. Um, Easter was wonderful. We had some lovely weather. I got to spend lots of time just doing things I love. So I was out my paddleboard. I was out my motorbike. I was in the garden. It was just it was wonderful. But uh, sadly, over too soon, yeah. uh, and the weather's returned to its British best today. It's yeah. it a bit colder today where I am. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is a bit colder, isn't it? So, and you and you know this question because we've done it so many times with you in your workshops. So, on a scale of one to ten, how energized do you feel today, Andrew? <laughs> Love that question. Um, do you know? I, I I think today I'm probably about a nine, to be honest with you. Um, oh. I, I'm I'm quite energized after uh, you know the the break and spending some time reflecting and doing things I love. 
and I'm, I'm at a point right now where I'm, I'm working on some new passion projects. I'm, I'm actually, I'm super energized right now. They're giving me lots and lots of energy. So yeah, I'd say nine, which I don't say very often. That's quite rare for me, Susie. No, that is, that's, that's, that's a bit like me. I think nine, excellent. Well, that's very good. Well, I'm, I'm excited about that because we've got a lot of lovely things to cover today. Um, I was trying to think, Andrew, this morning, we've known each other quite a long time. It must be at least 10 years. It would be, Suki. We've, we've kind of, we, we've kind of been talking and discussing and connecting a, across multiple different roles. Uh, I think we first started talking when I was back at Samsung. That's a long yeah. time ago now. So, yeah. yeah, it's been a long time. I was reflecting on that over the weekend, actually. Were you? Yes, because then you were there at Huawei and we did a little bit of work while I was at Oyster Catchers. And then yeah. obviously we've done a great bit of work together at Let's Reset. So, yeah. you know, love that. Um, well, let's talk. You know, I want to talk um, a bit about your work life and a bit about you and, you know, a lot of things that I know you very believe in. And, and as a leader, I have seen just how strong and powerful some of your thoughts have turned into action. But let's let's go back to you as a you as a person, because um, actually, I don't know. Having talked to you quite a lot, I don't know much about you when you were growing up. Where did you grow up and what kind of, of life did you have? Yeah, I. Uh... I, I would say I'm very unconventional uh, in kind of as a marketer uh, and my life is a bit unconventional. So I grew up um, in very small country town. So I grew up in a, in a, in a country town in South Australia called Pinneroo. My, my parents were publicans. Um, and I think the total, the total district's population was 700 people. So tiny, tiny, tiny. Um, and I think for me, it, it's, it's funny how your childhood instills so many things in you for, for the rest of your life. And for me, you know, that was both an amazing gift in terms of freedom. You know, I, I, I think I got my first horse at age seven and I was riding out on country roads for hours. It was like the greatest sense of freedom I ever had. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't imagine doing that for kids today. But also as a, as a marketer and a business person, it gave me real grounding. I remember at age eight, my mom, I asked for something and my mom's like, well, it depends, you know, on how much money we make in, in, the, in the pub. And I'm like, what? Yeah. And then I suddenly realized this connection. And I remember at age eight going, you know, outside the other pubs in, in the town to see how many people they had and counting how many people and trying to understand why were they there and not at ours? And, you know, it gave me a great insight into kind of marketing and branding and, and business. Uh, so that's kind of where I grew up. Uh, ironically, I think that the other side of that, my, my father was also, it was, it was amazing, but tough. My father was quite a high functioning alcoholic at the same time. So that was pretty wow. tough. Wow. Uh, but, you know, again, as a marketer and as, as the person I am today, it, it gave me some incredible gifts. I learned to read people very, very quickly. And I got kind of an off the charts sensory acuity from that experience. And I actually became quite a strong co communicator because of that. So they kind of gave me a good grounding. I mean, very commercial, uh, very unconventional and very focused on communication, very, very focused on communication yeah. and, and, you know, very focused on people and how they feel, I think, because of that upbringing. Um, Fascinating. I went off and, you know, we, we hear so often of, as you say, a high functioning alcoholic owning a pub. Yeah, 
crazy absolutely crazy that doesn't that does happen quite regularly but how did he did did your mother not say maybe this isn't the life for you yeah I think she I think she tried I mean look she did her absolute best um but you gotta remember this is a long time <laughs> I'm quite old this is a long time ago <laughs> yeah. there just wasn't a support network especially in that part of the world for yeah. women in that situation they just survived they just became resilient and learned to survive mm-hmm. And, you know, it, there's two sides to every story. When, when he wasn't, you know, the, the, suffering the effects of that, he was amazing, right? And actually, as in terms of branding, he was the brand, right? There was a very inauthentic brand uh, projected to, to kind of his target audience, which, which was the lifeblood of the business, but the authenticity wasn't always there. And, and when he, so then when he was, you know, you said you've got this kind of very fine tune. And I think I've heard so many stories of, of youngsters. We've seen it a lot, haven't we? You know, become very attuned to what their parent is going to be like. Um, did you, were you one of those children that hid away or you, you kind of tried to, you know, look after or did you just confront? What did you do when he was really... Yeah, it was interesting. I think I certainly didn't hide away. I lent into it a lot and I discovered influence very, very quickly, which is why I'm so passionate about communication. I studied NLP. I studied communications. I studied to become an actor. I was, you know, I studied it as a singer. I tried to be a rock star. I I became super focused on this, this, this thing of communication and influence and using emotion to influence. So short answer is I really lent into it really really strongly and I didn't let it define me because also I think you know a lot of people ask me that but when you're a kid you don't know any different right it's normal right that's your normal it's now you look and go well that that wasn't so normal actually that wasn't cool but it was normal right you don't know any different uh, until you, you get a bit older and you start thinking and reflecting on yeah yeah so where did you try and be a rock star oh so that was much later so I went off to boarding school which was a great gift for my parents they sent me off to boarding school because we lived nowhere Uh, um, uh, and so then I really discovered I really became quite passionate about singing and acting and I I did a lot of work there and it was after I left boarding school I deferred my university and decided I would be a rock star Um, failed dismally (laughs) recorded a couple great fun in terms of failing at that was great fun but I I quickly realised I wasn't going to make any money that and so then I went and studied acting and did kind of um tv commercials and all sorts of stuff quickly discovered also also not going to make any money Mm. I need a career which is when I got to marketing because I thought actually this is kind of me right it's it's that commercial grounding I had as a child Mm. and now I understood the ability to communicate influence and put those things together. It was kind of the best of both worlds for me. Um, That's so, so yeah. interesting. That's fascinating. I did drama at uh, Leeds University. It was my first degree. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then, then I ran a theatre, worked in a theatre, got an equity wow. card. Yeah. And did the same. I was a really average actor. <laughs> um, really average. I'm and, in that um, club too. <laughs> you know, it was just so deeply disappointing for me. But what I did realise was running a theatre was I was paid more virtually than all these amazing RSC actors that was down in Devon. 
And um, I thought, well, I, you know, I'm not going to earn any money. This is not going to be any good at all. And then I went into advertising. And then I discovered, because I went agency side, I discovered that pitching and running pitches was basically like acting. And so that, that, was my, that was my route through. And I, you know, actually found acting quite hard. I loved directing and I loved running a theatre. But um, uh, I then found this whole pitching thing. Oh, my God, literally made for that perfect yeah it's pretty it, it, the, the 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 discipline and the insights you get from acting in terms of communication and, and I, I do the same thing I pitch a lot internally to executive yeah. stakeholders I still draw on those skills every day and and the, the greatest thing for me was acting taught me as an adult to keep my imagination alive and active right and I I, I was taught the Stanislavski method which was Forget, forget trying to plan your moves or your lines. Just tap into your imagination and believe, believe in the moment and then everything else will follow. You know, marketing's the same, pitching's the same, communication is exactly the same. It doesn't matter whether it's a, a pitch to five people or 500. It's the same thing. So yeah, those, those acting days were, whilst they made no money out of them, uh, they gave me such tremendous skills and insights. Oh, I so agree that and that and you're absolutely right. I was the same. The sort of Stanislavski was the the thing. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a great insight. Great insight. So, when did you move from Australia to over to the UK? Yeah, so I, I moved. Uh, so I'd, I'd been here first. They came in 2004. So I was a consultant. I was a marketing consultant in retail banking. So I'd been here in 2004 for about a year, consulting with banks in. Northern Ireland and Scotland and uh, in the Netherlands and the UK. And then I, I, I just missed the Australian lifestyle too much. So I went home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I came back in 2009 with Vodafone. So Vodafone asked me to move from Australia to, uh, to, to a global role in the UK. And I came back. But this time I fell in love with London. And I, I also I think it was the first time I got a truly international taste of working globally across really diverse cultures and geographies. And I just, I just fell in love with it. I knew it was, I, I just couldn't get enough of the diversity and, and, and these different cultures. And I, I just fell in love with the complexity of doing business internationally. Um, and, and so I'm still here. <laughs> and now I get the whole global piece, because for me, um, you are, I mean, you, you, you are a truly global marketeer. And I think outside the sort of Unilevers and the PNGs, I don't, I don't see that many what I would call proper global marketers that aren't, you know, from one country. Often they come from the States and they have a global job. But it's not the same as being, as I've seen with you, you know, you've worked a lot with Chinese companies, you've worked with Samsung, you know, you just seem to embrace complexity and I think that's a great word for for what I see of you as a marketer and as a leader and being able to kind of navigate that way through yeah look um so first thank you for that feedback I'm I'm actually I'm actually quite humbled to hear that so thank you for that but I think yes I I you know I see myself as very unconventional not just where I come from but as a market I see myself as incredibly unconventional because it's also one of my passions now because you know, I, I've always, I, I didn't come through the traditional kind of P&G, Unilever, Danone, Diageo, you know, companies that 
train you and invest in you and develop you and give you. I, I came through chaos, basically, <laughs> or complexity, right? Companies that, you know, marketing was never at the center. It wasn't properly understood. It was a function, but it was never at the center. Uh, and, you know, you, you didn't get trained. You had to develop yourself. You had to learn. You had to, there was, there was, no, there was no training in marketing. There was no discipline. You had to go and learn yourself. So, yeah, I, I think I'm, I, I do really well in that environment because it's how I learned and, and uh, I've been doing it long enough now to learn. And actually, I think also because of kind of my core being in the way I was at, you know, my formative years, I also thrive in that complexity. I thrive because of my power of communication and simplifying things because of influence, because of a deep desire to understand. And I love diversity. I just love, I can't get enough of that. You know, I, and, and I'm also, you know, you, you know this and, and I'm quite open about this. I'm also gay and, and quite open. I wasn't always in my career. So that, that's also quite passionate. So, yeah, I, I, I tend now to focus and kind of orientate more towards a bit of complexity and chaos because I love it. And I love bringing simplicity and direction and focus to that and more importantly what now the thing I love more than anything else is being able to use that experience use those skills to help young marketers so they don't have to go through the same thing and because that's one of my great passions right now is I'm really frustrated that you know we just many companies outside of the traditional union leaders etc they just don't invest in their young marketers they don't invest in good training good development Let's Reset was, you know, one of the most amazing examples of exactly that, right? Small investments, massive returns that these people don't normally get. And I certainly never got. I got a bit in Vodafone. Vodafone was truly special. But most other companies, nothing. So, <clears throat> yeah, I think yeah. very unconventional. But that is so interesting. And, and actually, what I see, so you are one of... Um, you know, look, I, I think I feel very privileged that we've had lots of brilliant clients to work with. But you reached out to me when I dropped you a note and just went, oh, actually, I think your program is exactly what I'm looking for. I want to do it on a global basis and I'd like to do it in six weeks. Do you think we can do that? I'm like, oh, my God, what are you talking about? So, you know, we'd never done a program like we did with you. Um, but talk me through the thinking, because it was, I think, as brilliant for us as an experience as I think it was for your teams globally. Um, and you've been very kind, and we'll talk a little bit about it now. But um, talk me through what you were trying to achieve and the challenge that you had with DD globally at the time, because, you know, talk about chaos. There was, there was a lot going on, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah, certainly was. So, yeah, I, and again, I apologize for six weeks. I, I tend to make a habit of that. Uh, but again, I think that's we love it now. We love it love now. It, it makes such um, a lot of that at that rate. It's great. You, you made it look easy. You made it look easy. Um, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a story later about agencies and that approach. Um, so, I, I think look, the situation was it, it was quite challenging. So, I had joined DD. I think only in February. Tell, tell people what DD is because some people oh, yeah. might not know what DD yeah. is. So, so Didi is, uh, uh, it, it's, a, it's a business that comes from China uh, and it has a number of uh, marketplace businesses, one being ride sharing, so uh, like Uber, uh, home delivery, uh, food delivery, so kind of like, like Uber, but, but the Chinese equivalent. And they have a very big business in China. They're about 90, 90 
6% market share in China. And they're expanding around the world. So a big footprint in Latin America, was in South Africa, Middle East, et cetera. So I joined Didi in February with a brief to build an international marketing team to support the growth and to help um, accelerate the performance and the growth of the brand and our marketers and our commercial performance in the markets we were already in, Australia, New Zealand, Latin America, Brazil, Japan, et cetera. Um, but uh, within about four months, Didi, so first I was building a whole new team, transitioning existing teams to one international team. So, you know, my, my big model now is marketing must be one team uh, with one reporting line, shared vision, shared OKRs, but lots and lots of empowerment in local countries. So we we're making that transition, bringing new people in from different industries, launching new markets. Uh, and at the same time, the company had gone to IPO. Unfortunately, the IPO, you know, the company got in a bit of bother in, with the Chinese regulators and was now in a crisis. And I, I won't talk to that. Anyone can Google and quickly understand the crisis. So when I contacted you, we had two things. We had a huge amount of change, uh, incredible business pressure, and lots of uncertainty about our business coupled with what everyone else was also facing, which is we'd all been through a pandemic, right? And we're all working. We were doing all of this remotely, not seeing everybody, and everybody had their individual pressures associated with the pandemic. So that's when, you know, when you reached out to me, and I'd, I'd been listening to your podcast for a while, and I just, I'll be truly honest, Suki, I didn't really understand how powerful your program and Let's Reset was. But once we had those first sessions, it was transformational. Just, it was a... Uh, I've never experienced anything like those first couple of sessions. And I'll talk in a minute about some of the, some of the actual commercial results that come off the back of it. But what I was trying to achieve was just build community and build culture and show care and provide these people with support in what was very difficult times, but actually understand what was going on and understand what people wanted. Because for me, you know, at this stage of my career, I'm very focused on what I think is a good team. And it starts with community and culture and care, commonality and coaching. But I was looking for the platform to start that conversation. And, and then when you approached me, it felt like this could have been that platform. And it, and it, and it absolutely was. And it was fascinating because, you know, we have done quite a lot of European work. We hadn't done work at a global scale like you. You have a lot of people in South America, particularly. You had some people in Japan and Australia, so a lot of time zones. Um, we put everyone through the program. So everyone did the seven needs test. They all did the test. They all talked together because, as, as you say, it's a lot about initially getting people to talk. But then the other piece I thought you did brilliantly was bring you know, the leadership team together, they did some of the facilitation, which was fabulous. And then we did this kind of two or three day festival where you had a lot of, you know, um, conversation around what you were doing as a marketing team, the importance of creativity. And then we drove the work that we've been doing here through that as well. Um, you know, I've seen this happen a lot where Brilliant marketing teams actually do kind of celebrate the work, show the work, but so often they don't do both. They don't kind of show and tell and listen at the same time. What made you think that that would work? Yeah, I think it's, um, 
two things. So even before that, we, we, because we were one marketing community and because I wanted to make sure this was a very safe space, we were already constantly sharing work, both good and bad. Right? And I had some of my most senior leaders share our great failures and our great points of you know, personal arrogance where we just thought we knew better than the market or the consumer. So I think, I think it was some of what we'd already been doing, but I, th I think it's just, I, I can't tell you how committed I am to this idea of community inside our organizations and marketing. And I think sharing that work, sh sh being really open is just so important to building that sense of community. And you, you may remember from our seven needs assessment, one of the things that came out so strong for us was relationships. Yes. In yes. fact, that was, that was the crutch we were leaning on to survive. Right? Security and sense of security, <laughs> not surprising, was quite low. And, um, you know, empowerment was okay, but relationship was super strong. And again, I think it's that sense of community, that sense of sharing that, that made it feel safe. And I think that's the, that was the key for me, why that was so important to, for us to do. Yeah. And one of the things that, you know, I really admire about your team, because what we do after we've done those, you know, we did the seven needs with everyone, we came back and we said, look, as you say, relationships very strong some of the behaviors that you need to exhibit as a leadership team need to change. They need to be, you know, more overt. You need to think about what you're doing. Um, and I felt that all of you, but very much led by you and Ben as well, Ben did a brilliant job, yeah, um, were very keen to say, okay, what, you know, what are these behaviors going to be? How are we going to do it? And, and again, this was a, this is virtual behavior. So that's even more difficult. <laughs> and, you know, multinational virtual behavior that is very difficult. But I think, you know, it felt like you really reflected on that and you came up with some, some thoughts and some ideas and some behavior change that were very truthful to yourselves. But also, as you say, you were, you were good at scrutinizing what were you doing perhaps wrong uh, and how were you going to change. Um, I feel like that's something you reflect on a lot anyway. Tell me a little bit about like, your thinking behind that. Yeah, so I think, I, I think one of the things, so let, let me start with my personal values. I think as a leader, it, all, all, it comes from those. And whether you like it or not, your personal values as a, as a leader quite often become your culture. Uh, so I think it probably comes from that. So my personal values are honesty, integrity, diversity, equality, creativity, and fun. They're, they're my, <laughs> that I live my life by. And on that, I think that the ones that are so, so powerful, especially for situations like that, is the integrity. They're just so important. And, you know, you, you, you can't make genuine change or create these communities or culture or empower people to really do brilliant work if you can't actually live the behaviours required to do that. Uh, and that's really, really passionate to me and I think also it's part of my own journey right my, my childhood me you know coming out as gay choosing to be really honest and open about that with everybody um it's just I, it's something I think is really really important I think everybody needs to be in an environment where they have the freedom to do that but as leaders if we're really going to make these types of things work we have to actually identify the required behaviors commit to them and stick to them and they're not always easy, right? They're just not always easy, especially for me. I'm a bit of a workaholic. So one of our <laughs> things, as you know, was 
you know, people wanted, I, th I think one of the things was, you know, a, a, a well-being hour every day and Friday afternoons, no meetings. That's really hard for me. That's really yeah. hard, right? And I remember one of my leaders, I don't remember, actually, I think we had a smaller group of you and some of your team going, yeah, I just don't know how to work like this. I, I don't know how to do this. I, I want to, but, but I don't know how to do it. How are we going to yeah. do it? So I think those behaviors just need to be very tangible, very simple, and very honest. Uh, so that's kind of was my thinking behind that. Yeah. To be honest, yeah. it felt quite natural. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I, I guess fortunately for you and for definitely for us, you had a measurement afterwards. Yes, amazing. That showed that it worked. So tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I must admit, I was, I was a little shocked at how dramatic the results were. Um, I, I, you know, I knew from that very first uh, series of workshops where we went through everyone's questions, you know, everyone's results for the yes. survey and, you know, the stories that people were sharing about their life was, you know, I, I think in every market around the world, we had tears and every market I would get, I, as soon as those sessions were finished, I reckon I'd get five to 10 messages saying, thank you for giving us the space for taking this seriously just thank you. And I was blown away because it's so simple, right? It, it is so simple. It, it, it's so human and it's so powerful. It's kind of genius. But it wasn't until we'd done that. I was like, whoa, this, this is having a massive impact. That simple exercise of just making the time, being part of it and taking it seriously. Was having impact. So I knew the results would be good. Anyway, uh, what we did was just, uh, just, after the first session and just before the second kind of the, the festival around the, the Let's Reset Festival we created, we had our ENPS survey, which was fascinating because marketing was way ahead of the entire organization. This is the only thing that's really different, um, apart from our amazing leadership. Oh, but, um, <laughs> really a joke. Um, but this was the only thing that was different and it was so strong, the ENPS difference between marketing and the next closest division in the business was 25%. I mean, anyone that knows ENPS, moving ENPS in these kinds of situations, in these contexts, almost impossible. And, and in many other, in many other divisions, the ENPS had gone backwards, yet ours had gone ahead and by a lot. But actually, Suki, we also had some measures underneath what was driving that collaboration, transparency, and leadership. These things were up versus the rest of the organization. One of them was a, um, collaboration was up 50% compared to any other part of the organization. And in fact, what was fascinating, when those results come back, everyone's like, what are you doing in marketing? Why We, we can't get people to collaborate. What's going on? Um, now, to be fair, I'm not saying let's reset as all of it, but it, 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 is, it is a very, very big contributor. And it is the one outlier that had a great and close proximity to those measurements taking place. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very grateful that we did it. And, you know, again, given the relative investment, it, it, it's, it's a very strong commercial decision. It, it, I don't know anything that can change EMPS that quickly, short of, actually, I don't know anything that can change it that quickly. Yeah, but it's so interesting, isn't it? Because, I and mean, thank you for sharing that, because... It is really helpful. And I think, you know, you and I, we similarly share just the importance of this. And I think for me, the bit that I find, you know, in many ways, and I talk about this a lot, that for this is my fourth business I've started. In many ways, it's the one I love the most. 
it's the one that is the most frustrating because everyone goes, oh, it's a really good idea. Let's think about our people. Let's let's look at collaboration. Let's let people talk openly. But they don't really want to invest the time or the budget in it. And they want to do exactly what they do all the time, which and we work you know, across the whole businesses. So it's not just marketeers. But they'll say, well, yeah, but we'll look at the commercial side or we'll look at you know, training people a bit more in financial understanding, or we'll just change the model slightly. Um, And it's very difficult to get leaders, partly because it's uncomfortable, partly because they can't measure it in the same way, and partly because I think they think they do it. I'd agree with all those things. I think, I'll be honest with you, when I looked at it, to be honest, I didn't properly understand it to start with, but I'd been listening to your podcast, which really opened my mind. Um, and to be honest, I, I had no idea what to expect. But th- let me tell you a story, actually. This was a, a very transformative experience I had. And it was with, actually, it was when I first joined Huawei. Uh, and I had a Chinese boss called Walter G, amazing guy. Uh, and I'd been there about a month. And we used to drive each other absolutely crazy, absolutely crazy. And he sat me down one day and he said, Andrew, we drive you crazy. We being the Chinese leadership. I'm like, yeah, you, you absolutely drive me crazy. He's like, well, guess what? You drive us crazy. I'm like, what? <laughs> and he, he taught me the most valuable lesson about the crossover between the two approaches to business. And he's like, see, the thing is, we are so focused on progress. We just want to test and learn all the time. So we don't want to spend days and weeks analyzing and doing. Yes, we do due diligence. We would rather just try, learn, adapt, try, learn, adapt. And the thing is, it will, we will fail many times and we'll make lots of mistakes. But in the three months it takes you to do all the analysis and the planning and follow all your processes and do all your academic research, we will have done it and got exactly the same result you've got, but we would have already learned from all of our mistakes and we've been doing it. And for us, that's really powerful because we're doing, we're not planning. And I think actually that's really impacted me a lot as a marketer, which is why things like six weeks or, you know, I'm like, you know what, let's just try it and, and see and learn. And as long as we can capture the learnings, that would be amazing. So I think that's, for me, why I approach these things a little differently. And, you know, you, know, you and I just probably get me in trouble, but, you know, I didn't engage HR at all, right? Probably should have. But I just want to learn and get the data. Yeah. Now it's a very different discussion, right? And it's not, it's, the beauty about Let's Reset, it's not, it's not a big imposition. It's not a huge cost. It can be done quite effectively and efficiently without big risk for your organization. So I, I get where you're coming from in terms of getting people to understand, but I think that's also, actually, I think that's a higher order problem with some of our more traditional ways of doing business, which are a bit more risk adverse. <clears throat> I agree. And, and, you know, as I've said so many times, I always expect all of my businesses, and actually for me, this is very similar to where I was with Haystack years ago, when nobody really understood why you'd need an agency to help you find a, a you know, business to help you put clients and agencies together. It was just such an anomaly. They couldn't really get it at all. Um, And then always the best leaders, the best companies work with us first. And if I look at my client list, it's absolutely true. Exactly, exactly, exactly true for Let's Reset. You know, we've got, we have got genuinely great leaders like you, uh, like the guys at TUI, that have got really difficult challenges. And then we have brilliant companies like Google and Pinterest and John Lewis that work with us. And it's and it always happens. And then other people kind of catch on and follow. 
So that's fascinating. What a great uh, data point. <laughs> absolutely. So I just say to the team, don't worry, I've seen it all before. It always happens. And I talk to lots of other entrepreneurs and they just say, you just have to wait for that you know, bigger tipping point where people have an aha moment like you, but you led it, um, that say we can invest something in this, we can try it, even if we don't exactly know what's going to happen, because the result will be transformative. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. I agree. Um, thank you for sharing that. Let's talk <coughs> a bit more about you. Um, you, you. You said there that uh, you're gay and you came out when did you were you were you at home with your parents did you come come out to them? No. Where, where, <clears> no I didn't I didn't I didn't come out till quite late in life so okay. I didn't come out until uh, actually I was living in the UK um and I often reflect on why I didn't I think we just you know we, we all have our journey and we all get to mm. a point where we're more comfortable I think to be honest my childhood made it quite tough to get comfortable with that um yeah. there's certainly coming from a small town <laughs> that kind of environment and of course also i think <clears throat> my my journey through very unconventional marketing companies was also quite challenging but i'll tell you when i came out i had i actually i had a real problem at one of the companies i worked for and i promised myself after that company i would never ever ever uh not be out and very open and upfront with companies about the fact that I was gay. Now I shouldn't have to be, but uh, I decided that. I would. Uh, and from that day, I've always been really clear with any new business or company that, okay, we shouldn't have to have this conversation, but we're going to have it because if it's a problem, find someone else. And actually, you know, as, as, a, as a gay person, most of the time the issues are in your own head, not other, other people are quite fine with it. So we have all these issues in our own head. Uh, and actually, since I've done that, it's been my career has been better than it's ever been because I don't have to ever live with that or live with that concern. And I'm quite confident that, you know, if, if it's a problem, fine. You know, and, and actually, ironically, the best companies in the world I've worked for have been the Chinese, who so I've been very, very open. And they're like, so just yeah. if you get the results, we don't care. <laughs> Do what you want. <laughs> You know, which is great, isn't it? And it's amazing. You know, very and necessarily we think about the Chinese, is it? Yes, yes. And everybody, everybody asks me, like, really? I'm like, no, actually, completely the opposite. Completely opposite. Really, you know, and even in Huawei, Huawei is a very traditional company, it's quite tough, but actually very, very open about it and very you know and I, I dealt with really really senior leaders and I was very very clear about my situation um I was, I was really really accepted um and and Didi is probably the other extreme Didi's really embraced it I'm I'm really active on those diversity committees etc but yeah so I, I didn't come out till quite late in life and I certainly didn't come out until work until later in life and I came out because a company I was working for kind of found out and they really didn't like it I'm not going to say what company but they really didn't like it. And it was after that experience. How did that make you feel, Andrew? Uh, awful. It was, it yeah. was devastating because my performance was outstanding, like outstanding. Uh, but then being literally discriminated against because of that was outrageous. Uh, yeah. But... It, it is what it is you learn and actually I think it forced me to make a decision that nothing was ever worth not being honest about that and it's, it's actually made it really powerful and it's one of the things again I love 
so much about my positions now is I can make it really safe places for marketers all over the world. And that, you know, I, I actually love that. And it's not, not just safe places for gay marketers, but for diversity, right? Really, really safe places. And, you know, it's one of the things I get the greatest satisfaction out of is creating these safe places for people from different cultures, different, you know, backgrounds, different genders, different gender biases, et cetera. That's actually, that's one of the things I really love doing with, with developing people. Like, you know, and I think so, yeah. So how to make me feel awful. So absolutely awful. Um, that company did help pay for a flat for me as a result. So that's okay. Um, Good. Uh, <laughs> Good. Good. It's, I mean, it's shocking, isn't it? It is absolutely shocking, but you know, and, and, and again, you know, having seen you in your more recent companies with this very kind of diverse team, one of the questions I'm still asked a lot by you know, very good leaders that care is their rationale, perhaps, for not having a more diverse, particularly leadership teams, this still happens with, I think, is that either there's not the people or, you know, they're choosing the best person and they happen to be very similar to everyone else that they've got in the company and how do they go from where they are to being able to not only create but embrace and improve um, and, and kind of create this diverse team and I'm interested you know what you've done a number of times now is very quickly built quite extensive groups of people how do you do that and make it uh, diverse at the same time yeah that's uh... <clears throat> That is an excellent question. And it's, it's something, the action I struggle with quite a bit because a lot of those, I'm going to call them excuses um, that people put to you, uh, 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 they have some validity, right? Sometimes it is really hard when you have to do in a hurry to get the right diversity. Um, however, I, I think for me, first and foremost, there is plenty of diverse talent out there plenty of diverse talent there's no question about that but you have to be absolutely committed to finding them you may not all, always be able to find them as quickly as you want so then I always design my team I, I do kind of positively discriminate when I design a team in terms of what I'm looking for or almost almost quotas to start with right because that sets you in the right direction and then if you can't find the right person well maybe that role can wait a bit longer until you can find someone to promote from within as you build these organizations yeah. Um, so I think, I, I, I'll be honest, I do positively discriminate because, again, diversity is such a core value for me. I think it's just so important because it brings a diversity of thought that is actually, it's, it's, it's not just beautiful and comfortable. Mm -hmm. It's a commercial advantage, right? It, it is actually a commercial advantage. Um, so I think I, I design for it and... But I think my, my recruitment started 20 years ago. I, I spend lots and lots of time with people I've worked with in many parts of the organization, you know, speaking and panels and stuff, seeking out very, very diverse opinions and relationships. So when the time comes, I've got a network that I can tap into straight away for these opportunities. And, and that's, but that started 10 years ago. So that's, yeah, but that's so interesting because one of the things that we were reflecting on, because, you know, if I look at your leadership team you had at DD, you had a few people like Ben Yanli um, that you've worked with before. Yeah. And, and then you had some people you'd never worked with before and they came together. And I, 
Uh, I feel a little like you, you know, I feel privileged to have been in this industry for so long. And actually, I can put together um, people I've worked with for a long time, people I've never worked with, but really wanted to. I can work with clients I've worked with before and new ones that I've never had that opportunity to. And I think there is a real, there's a, there's a moment, isn't there, in your career that I feel like I have now, where you kind of get to work with the very best. Yeah, absolutely. But like you say, I think it's a really interesting insight. We've sort of spent 10, 15 years doing that. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't come overnight. And also I think for me, it was also a point where e- even though I value diversity so much, I've got huge underlying biases, right? Because we are attracted to people who, who sometimes think like us, who sometimes behave like us, who are comfortable. But again, when you get to that stage where you've got a big talent pool, you've got people you trust, it allows you to bring in people who are really going to challenge you and who yeah. are really going to make life difficult because that's what you need, right? Yeah. But it, it, it's a double-edged sword because it is not going to be comfortable. It's going to be really uncomfortable and they're going to force lots of uncomfortable conversations around the work, but that's what you need. But I think if you've got the balance of, of some of the consistency, you have more freedom to do that and more and, and importantly I think so you have more time to spend with those people because they also need to know it's a safe place and they need to find their voice and they need to find their power and if you can't spend time with them then actually it will end badly so yeah I, I, there is no substitute for building that network over time I think it's really important and yet yeah, then having the great pleasure of being able to choose is you know that's a huge privilege huge privilege yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm sure um, the people listening to this will be going, gosh, uh, slightly sitting there in awe and admiration of, you know, you're thinking about what you've done and, and also how you achieve to do these things at a global level. But I think there's also another part of your life that I just want to touch on, because for me, knowing about your husband um, and, and he's had a chronic illness for some time. And so you also, in many ways, play a role of a carer. And I think, you know, when I really understood the depth of of his illness and the impact it has on both of your lives, that to me, I just simply can't imagine how you've managed and supported at that level um, and still you're there. Um, So, you know, if you don't mind, um, just just share a little bit about him and and you and, and, and how you've been coping with all of that. Yeah, of course. So actually, thank you for asking, Suki, because I, again, I'm quite open about that. And for many people, it's quite a difficult conversation because people don't know how to respond right, to, to that. And I'm, I'm pretty open in that. So thank you for asking. Uh, look, it's, you know, I think, I think for me, Suki, look, first and foremost, it's, it's tragic and it's, yeah, it's, it's awful. Right? He, he has a condition that will, that has, dramatically reduced his quality of life that you know we 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 spent way too much time in hospital uh and the reality is there's no cure and it will dramatically shorten his life so it's a terrible situation terrible and and this was a really fit healthy man uh struck by a terrible illness how do i how do i do it i think you know I, again and I, I think i'm i'm quite resilient because of my life journey and I often tell people I'm just navigating life because I don't have any answers. And every day there's something I've never, I just didn't see coming. And this was one of those things that I'm just navigating. 
And but what it does do, Suki, I think is it's taught me to just really, really value what you do have and focus on what you do have and make the most of what you do have because you just can't control what happens to us. And I know you, you've had your own challenge. You, you just can't control them. If we try and focus on that, we're going to miss the beautiful moments we have. So that's why I focus on. I don't focus on what we've lost. I don't focus on, you know, in, in some really being a care and the implications that has. I just focus on what we do have and trying to make my life and his and the people around me as positive as possible because there's enough sadness in his illness. I don't want that to become my life and I don't want that to permeate my relationship. So I just really focus on trying to make the most of what we have and celebrate what we do have, not what we don't. And, you know, there are some also very pragmatic and practical things that come with that, you know, whether you like it or not, that, that has a, that's an emotional burden. Sickness is an emotional burden. And you're, at some level, you're grieving for what you've lost. Yeah. And, and you've got to, again, that's, I, I, this sounds like a plug for Let's Reset, but it, it just works. You know, that's why you know, physical well-being and mental well-being are so important, right? For me, you know, physical exercise is really important for me. I don't compromise on that. Um, I don't compromise on sleep. I try and eat well, although I eat too much rubbish. Um, uh, and, and more and more, I take a lot more time for self-reflection because that gives me perspective and context. Um, and so how do I handle it? I think it's an attitude of just be really grateful for what we have. And that's built in my DNA. I drive him crazy. I drive him absolutely crazy of well, you know, let's just get on and do it. I think that comes from my, my mother was quite stoic. So I'm just, well, it, it is what it is. We just got to get on with it and find a way around it. Yeah. And then I've learned strategies to be able to cope with the emotional baggage that comes with that. I've yeah. learned quite strong strategies. And actually, ironically, I, I remember telling this to one of my, my, my um, bosses at Huawei. Um, Actually, it makes me way better at work and what I do. It makes me much better because nothing really upsets me. Nothing really panics me. Nothing really gets me down because I've got this amazing perspective and context about what's really important. And, you know, if, if something doesn't work or if we, we waste some money, or a big deal. Who, who cares, right? It's, not, it's really not life and death. So that perspective, I actually think, gives me much a much greater, stronger toolbox to, to kind of do what I do. I don't see it as a negative, actually. That's so interesting, isn't it? I was, I, I'm interested in, in seeing whether this resonates with you as well. So somebody very close to me um, uh, who's been through my journey with me for, for a, a number of years, and, and he said, you know, the bit I found really difficult was not ca catastrophizing um, from the situations you've been in in the past. So my fear of you dying is very difficult. I find that very difficult to cope with. And in many ways, you know, I, I have been quite ill in, in the past and, and actually in the last few months. But once it's over, for me, it's over. I almost don't remember what it was like. So I don't relive moments of going, oh, that was a bit close, you know, or yeah. I'm really worried about that. Or, I, you know, I always worry the day before my scan, but I never worry any other days other than the day before my scan. Whereas him and, and you know, a number of my friends find it difficult because they worry about me quite a lot more than I worry about myself. And, and 
is does that resonate with you and how do you cope, cope with that yeah so I, I i yes it resonates a lot um it resonates a lot and i think it's um i, I think it's a double-edged sword right on, on the one hand we are so blessed to have friends like that that really care and really worry for us right absolutely blessed and it's also those same friends that get you through the moments when your resilience is not there right so we are blessed uh but also the the thing is you never learn to deal with it until you have to deal with it and you going through the sickness or me going through it might you have to deal with it right and it's quite traumatic at times to have to deal with it (laughs) so i think it's hardwired you never want to go back there because that's done i don't want to go through that again our friends haven't gone through that and I don't think there's any way they can ever, ever understand or get to that until they have. And they'll always worry. Um, and they'll always be anxious. I think it's an anxiety for what the future holds. But again, I think when you get to a mindset of, I don't know what the future holds. I can't control what the future holds, but I can control what's happening in the next 10 minutes or I can control how I respond to that. That's very different. And that's quite empowering as opposed to disempowering. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, and like you say, it does make you really focus on what's really, really important. And, oh, yeah. and you know, that kind of real classic cliche of live every day, but you you, you, you kind of just do, <laughs> you just do, because you just don't know. It is uh, a cliche, but it's also true. I know, I know it is, isn't it? You know, people will say to me, you're so positive and resilient. I'm like, yeah, what else are you going to do? not really gonna happen (laughs) i think the truth is also we also have bad days right we also have oh god yeah we probably pick ourselves up a bit quicker yeah because because you're kind of still alive hey that's good (laughs) exactly exactly. all right it's all right (laughs) um look i could talk to you forever but i'm going to just ask you one last question which is uh, a few weeks ago alex partridge and i were talking he's an ex-olympic athlete yeah and he asked me a really poignant question which i'm now asking a few of my guests um which is if i asked you the question of yourself who am i uh, what would you say? Um, gosh, I mean, in this conversation, we've just seen quite a lot of, of who you are. How would you describe yourself? Yeah, I would say, um, wow. I, 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 I would say um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm young at heart constantly growing and learning and you know i am just navigating life i think i think that is i use that phrase a lot actually i am just i'm just navigating life trying to still trying to work out who i am still trying to work out what really drives me and still trying to work out uh how i can contribute and make this make this life really count so yeah i would say who i'm just someone that's navigating life trying to work it out that's lovely Absolutely lovely. And, you know, I'm very glad that some of that navigation of life has been with me and my business. Um, It's been an absolute joy to talk to you. We're going to talk again at the Power Up Festival on the 19th of May. So really, really looking forward to that. And thank you for sharing a little bit about yourself. You know, you said you are a very open and transparent leader. And I think from our conversation today, we can see, you know, a lot of the things we've talked about are quite uncomfortable for some people. And, you know, the passion that you show um and i think just the very authentic way that you talk about your life and your work and the belief that you have as a leader 
um, and the stories about the way we've worked together at Let's Reset. And thank you for that. Um, but thank you, Andrew, for sharing our conversation today. Likewise, Suki. Suki, it is my, it is my great, great pleasure to chat with you today. And uh, likewise, huge, huge mutual admiration for what you've done and what you continue to do. And a, a, a very authentic thank you for Let's Reset. It, it, it actually made a very tangible difference to the lives of a lot of my colleagues. And for that, I'm, I'm, I'm internally grateful. So uh, thank you. Look forward to um, chatting with you again. Thanks. Mm, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed Reset the Podcast, I'd love it if you would forward it to your work colleagues, friends and family. Reset the Podcast is a Let's Reset and Advertising Week global production. Executive producer is Richard Larson, with me, Suki Thompson. Thanks to our sponsor, Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits and voiceover artist, Talitha Penny. Music provided by Audio Network. <laughs>